Amen. All right. Uh, I would encourage you to make sure and remind you uh, to take one of these cards. Actually, take like ten. And ha- it's an excuse for you to have a conversation with your neighbor or your friend. Um, the, the times aren't on there. Obviously, the Sundays are the same. Good Friday will probably be like 7 p.m. So uh, take these. We've got like 500 because there's like an extra 10 bucks to get more than double of 250. So um, take some, pass them out, and uh, you know, hopefully we'll have an awesome Easter service. And uh, we're going to have baptism. So um, again, if you want to be baptized, we have a little hot tub set up. I won't be getting wet, I don't think, but someone will be, and it will be uh, glorious to see that happen. Um, and for those of you who prayed for uh, uh, Clayton Hoxo, he's doing well. He was uh, doing the slides in first service, so, and he didn't screw anything up, so it looks like there's no damage. Um, but he, uh, he is here, he's healthy, and uh, he just had, he missed a, an hour of time, doesn't exist in his mind, but uh, I was talking to an older gentleman in the church, and he said, oh, that's normal, he'll get used to that. So... Um, he is doing well, so uh, God be praised uh, for that. Well, we're in um, Habakkuk, the ever-popular book, and we'll be in it for uh, a couple weeks, uh, five actually, with kind of Easter in between there. And to find the book, uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the back that you can grab, but to find it, you could just kind of go through uh, 35 books of the Old Testament, um, uh, but instead, probably start in the 39th book, um, and Malachi, and go back four, and it'll be a little bit easier to do. Um, just by way of education, if you didn't hear last week's sermon, I kind of gave a survey of Old Testament from Genesis to Habakkuk to give us some context to the story, so we don't feel like we're coming in on chapter 12 or lost episode uh, 7, season 6, uh, but you, uh, it helps us to give some, some color and some understanding of where we're at and where uh, this book is, is being, what audience is being written to. Uh, but just by way of uh, structure, and you can read some of this in the study guide, the first five books of the Old Testament are called the Books of the Law, also known as the Pentateuch. They're written by Moses. Uh, the next 12 books uh, are considered the books of history, uh, ending with uh, Esther. And then the five books from there, which are kind of Job through the Song of Solomon, are, are called the books of poetry or wisdom. And then there's Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Lamentations, and Ezekiel, and Daniel. And those will be considered the major prophets, not major because they were bigger, but they, what they wrote is uh, larger. And so then you have the last 12 books, which are the minor prophets, of which Habakkuk is one. And many would, would argue uh, that maybe the most important one of those minor prophets, because of its influence on the Apostle Paul, uh, on Martin Luther, and John Wesley, and some other men, uh, in church history. So, basically, what it's about, in essence, is about faith. Uh, it's an interesting picture, portrayal, sometimes disturbing portrayal, of what it actually means to live a life of faith. And the Talmud, which is uh, a central text for, for Judaism, and it basically is full of uh, rabbinic commentary and discussions about the law about ethics and, and, and history. There's a, a quote in it from one of the rabbis, and he said this, uh, that Moses gave Israel 613 commandments, which is basically all the commandments of the law. David reduced them to 10, Isaiah 2, but Habakkuk to 1. The righteous shall live by his faith. And it's this central verse 2, or chapter 2, verse 4, that really is the heart of the book of what we're talking about here. It's a study about a man 
uh, also really a study about you and I, trusting that God knows what He is doing, especially when we don't like it, uh, which is where faith is actually really fleshed out in the, in the meat grinder of life, if you will. Um, now, who was Habakkuk himself? Well, really there's not much known about this man. Uh, there's some legends attached to him in Jewish history, but not much is known about him. His name could, it doesn't, there's some difference of opinion on that, could come from a Hebrew word that means embrace. And I like it because, honestly, Habakkuk's one of those guys, this will sound fluffy, but you just kind of want to hug because he is a guy that is really real to me, really honest to me, and a guy that I can, I can sincerely relate to. Um, he, uh, in this book, he basically, it's a little different than the other prophecies. You read something like Nahum, and they're basically, he's coming through and just prophesying destruction on the city of Nineveh, of which Jonah had come prior, and they'd repented, but now they've changed their ways. Um, and he records, though, differently, a conversation, kind of private talks with God. And they sound... Um, I don't know if he assumed that they would remain private. Um, Emily Dickinson, if you know, I was previously an English teacher, and Emily, Emily Dickinson wrote all this poetry, never published any of it. Uh, she didn't want it to be published, and it ended up being published by her husband or her brother. I can't remember who. Uh, that's why the titles of all her poems are always the first line of the poems, because she didn't intend, she always wanted it private. And I wonder if Habakkuk maybe assumed this might be private, and, you know, if we recorded our private conversations with God, I don't know about yours, but mine would sound kind of raw and fairly colorful and maybe shocking at times because they're private. And I'm going to talk with God the way I would want to uh, ex- truly express my heart. And I'm not going to be fake because how do you fake out God? It's kind of really not a possible thing. But chapter 2, verse 2 records God telling Habakkuk, write this down. I want you to write down what I'm about to tell you and show you. And it's kind of this big uh uh-oh moment because Habakkuk knows in order for everyone to understand what God's going to say, he's going to have to record what came prior to that, which is, in essence, his complaints and his really challenging questions, uh, at least for us, but challenging questions to God. And for me, books like Habakkuk really build my faith, because I think they show in a very raw sense that the heroes of the Bible, the guys that we would consider maybe um, people to admire, are not super heroic, you know, all-powerful, faithful, super-Christians all the time. At least that's not what the appearance is. Uh, They don't have this invincible faith that they never ask any hard questions or have doubts. And scriptures that record kind of the unedited realness of men the, the things that they are thinking, the things that they do, the things that they don't do, strengthen my faith personally because it really often mirrors my faith and what it actually looks like. All fakey Christian pastoral stuff aside, it looks sometimes like this. And I was, as I kind of meditated on this, um, about the disciples that hung around with Jesus, because they're a ragamuffin group of guys that uh, we can stand back someone's and laugh at, thinking that we would actually behave differently than them. But I was thinking Luke. Uh, Luke is, was a disciple of, of Jesus. He wasn't one of the, the twelve. But he, he came and, and he wrote Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote Acts. And Luke is 
a doctor. It's one of the longest Gospels. It's very detailed. And uh, he intended it to be detailed. And, and, and he says in the beginning to have, you know, kind of a, an eyewitness account of what actually happened. And Acts is clearly the, what happened after Jesus ascended and, and how the church kind of laid out and he traveled around with Paul. But I was wondering as he was putting together his gospel what the conversations must have been like with the disciples. As he asked them about some of the hard stuff of rumors maybe he'd heard, stories like, okay, let's, let's hear about what was happening. So James, John, yeah, you know, the two brothers of thunder, okay. James, so you guys, let me get this straight. So you guys were walking along with Jesus and he told you to go into the Samaritan village and preach. Yeah, we did that. And we preached to him. He's like, okay. And so then what happened? Well, they denied us. You know, they denied Jesus. Okay. So then what I was told by the other guys, maybe this is not true, but I was told by the other guys, you came out and you were really upset. Yeah, because they were just, just Samaritan. But... So you were really upset and you asked Jesus to call fire down on them and kill them. Right? Yeah, that's what we did. Okay, good. Just so I have it right. Peter. Hey, Peter, so... My understanding is, you did, was, it, was it four times you denied Jesus? No, it was three. It was three. Oh, three times. So three times you denied him. Okay, just so I had it right. Not mocking, but really, imagine Peter going, really didn't want that brought up again, but he wrote it down. And you have Peter. So, um, so did Jesus actually call you Satan? I mean, to your face? Is that how it worked out? Yeah, that's how it worked. Thanks, you know. And recording these, these stories, if you read the Gospels, it, it, for me it brings me strength. These guys are real. They're normal. They're like Paul. So you were standing there as Stephen got stoned, right? I mean, did you throw any stones? Did you just hold the coats for everybody? No, Luke, I held the coats. Can we move on, please, and talk about planting this church over here, okay? I mean, it, it's raw. It's real. And so I think as you approach Habakkuk, you have to see it that way as this, private conversation he's having with God and I think that if if we if we had these kind of talks with God for everyone else to hear we typically don't because we think it sounds faithless and I wonder if maybe it's actually a demonstration of of genuine faith where you really want to know I'm not just an accept and move on I want to know I want to understand as much as I can so Habakkuk simply writes as he sits in this world how broken it is and he wonders why God hasn't done anything. And it doesn't, you know, take much to see that our world is broken. Uh, it's pretty obvious. And many people, though, I think use that brokenness to deny that God exists sometimes, but that God cares or that he has the power to do anything about it. And unlike most of the world and maybe some of the believers... Habakkuk doesn't deny God. He doesn't accuse Him necessarily or judge Him. He complains through prayer. In the midst of this darkness, he goes to God through prayer. And God is never surprised. He's not like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you asked that question. You don't ask that. He's never surprised, never shocked, but his answer for Habakkuk in this response is incredibly shocking. And very unexpected. So, let's go into verse, we're going to be in verses, chapter 1, 1 through 11. And we'll start with the first verse and then work our way down. And the first verse says this. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. What do you have to say about that verse? Well, 
Here's what I have to say. In uh, the King James Version, it translates the word uh, oracle as burden, which I think is an interesting way to look at it, because without question, there is a, uh, there's a weight to this message that I'm thinking that uh, Habakkuk maybe would, not, would rather not have heard, or maybe not have carried. And in this message, God tells him his plans ahead of time, as disturbing as they are, and while I think we might believe, and I, I touched on this last week a little bit, that knowing the way things are going to play out in our lives or in the lives of others actually might bring us comfort, I wonder if it might be too much of a weight for us to carry. Like that's just, whoa, that's too heavy, right? The 1980s heavy term, that's heavy. It might be too heavy for us to, to carry. And the thing is that it's because we're not God, and I say that because the liar Satan, we, we, we kind of believe that lie a lot. And in the Garden of Eden, he, he said flat out to Adam and Eve, you're going to be like God. You're like God. You have this potential. And the fact is, there's nothing like God. There's God and everything else. It's called creation. Satan is included in that. And so, God is utterly different than us. He is eternal. He has always been. He will always be. He is perfect in all His ways, which we could meditate on for hours and hours and hours because we have no concept of perfect justice. It doesn't make sense to us. Perfect goodness, perfect love, perfect mercy, perfect grace. I mean, those types of things for us are difficult to comprehend because of the brokenness of mercy that we see in our own lives and the lives of others. Perfect beauty, complete independence from His creation, not needing creation at all. Outside of time, seeing all things, past, present, future, at the same moment, never surprised, never forgetting anything, always controlling all things for His glory, which is for our good. He cannot be measured, contained, controlled, or changed. And He reveals those things that He chooses to reveal and leaves those things He chooses to be a mystery, mysterious. In Isaiah 55, 8, 9, it's so funny how we stand, it's not funny, it's sad, how we often stand in judgment on God, thinking that we can actually comprehend what He's doing or possibly know even a speck of what He knows. In Isaiah 58, 8-9, it says this, For my thoughts, God speaking, are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so Habakkuk asks, tell me what you're going to do. He's like, all right, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you. And it's heavy, and he writes and records what he sees, how he sees the story playing out, and God gives him a little peek of what's going to happen. Here's his complaint, verses 2 through 4. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Sound familiar? Does to me. Or cry to you violence and you will not save. Why do you make me? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous so justice, if it ever goes out, goes forth perverted. This is his complaint. 
Now, a little bit of context. Know that Habakkuk loves God. He loves God, and it pains him to see God's people, because that's who he's talking to, sinning. Now, he's writing about Judah to Judah. At this point, the ten tribes, the nation has been divided. It's been divided for several hundred years. The northern ten tribes have been conquered by Assyria at this point. They're starting to get attacked by a, a nation called Babylon, who will eventually defeat them. You have these two tribes called Judah together. One is actually Judah, but they're called Judah in the south. And he is probably, Habakkuk, writing near or after, I should say, but near after the death of Josiah. And Josiah was one of the most loyal kings in the southern kingdom and most loyal kings in the line of David. Josiah ascended to the throne. He was eight years old. So anyone's eight or a little bit young, know that God certainly can use you. There's no age of like, well, when you are ten, I maybe can... T-. No, eight years old, this guy is the king of a nation. Now, certainly, God didn't really smack him upside the head in terms of his devotion to God until he was about 16. But the Bible records that in the 18th year of his reign, when Habakkuk was probably a teenager, not writing yet, but experiencing this, when the 18th year of his reign... He went and proceeded to repair the temple, not him, but he said, let's repair the temple at Jerusalem because it had been kind of broken after all the years of bad kings and had fallen into disrepair. And the high priest goes in and they find a scroll. And the scroll is actually the law. And so they open the scroll and it's the Pentateuch and he reads it, Josiah reads it, this 16, 18-year-old kid reads it and he's blown away. He's like, holy snarf burgers we are way off the mark here and how we're living we no longer celebrate passover what's happened to the sacrifice what are we doing we are not obedient to what god's laws no wonder we're so messed up and so he declares this incredible reform and he starts to clean up the temple and to re-celebrate passover and there's a time of of really joy and and nationalism as they begin to purify their worship and to ultimately uh, honor God as they should have. And the reality is, as soon as Josiah died, it was clear that the reforms were kind of coming from the top down. It wasn't really infecting everyone, although they liked it, and they began to fall into sin again. But there was a great time of purity that happened. And as they begin to revert to their evil ways, though, of which, again, Habakkuk is watching, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, both books in the Bible, record what's going on and how it's falling more and more to depravity again. So they're writing almost at the same time. And in asking, as he does in this first verse, how long, Lord? Who knows how long Habakkuk's actually been praying this, but it's not the first time. He's been praying and praying and waiting for some time for God to answer. And God seemingly has done nothing. He's done nothing but allow what happened to the Josiah time. And it's beginning to be worse and worse. And so Habakkuk, in verse 2, says he's just consumed with grief and disturbed by the sin that he sees in Jerusalem and all of Judah. And he asks God, why, it's an interesting phrase, why do you make me see it? Like he's holding his head there. Look, look, why do you make me see it? And I, I sat on this and I was like, why, why would he ever say that? 
And I think the truth of the matter is, it's very easy and natural for us, all of us, to ignore injustice and just to go along our life indifferent to it. It's there, everywhere. But it's very easy for us to ignore it. Let me give you an example. Recently, I I live in kind of the border of Lake Stevens and Marysville, and recently there's been a lot of uh, beggars on the street corners that I haven't seen typically before. I've seen, obviously, beggars before. They have their signs. They always say, God bless. And we were driving one time, and I, you know, honestly, I see them, and I do the exact same things that you do. Now, maybe you're more spiritual than me, and I say that to your credit, not mine, but, you know, typically, suddenly my radio needs to be adjusted a million different times when I'm sitting there at the light, like, you know, <laughs> I've never looked at it once, but now I need to do that, or I need to do something down below so I don't have to stare because I'm uncomfortable because I feel something, and I don't want to deal with it, so I'll ignore it. Well, you can only ignore it so long till your kids are with you. And the kids start to ask questions that, hey, Pastor Dad, what's going on over there? Now, kids are wonderful, beautiful. They have a childlike faith, and through them I begin to see why God describes how our faith should be childlike. Because they ask questions that you don't want to answer and you'd rather not engage with. So what, why don't we help that guy? Uh... And you'd be blown away by the creative justifications I came up with. Well, son, you see, there are a lot of people out here that uh, actually don't need to be out here. Clearly, he's in a position of need, but you can make a very good living right there. So you have to be discerning on who you give to and who you don't give to. Meanwhile, remembering, I haven't given to any of them. I don't know what kind of discernment's going on. I've discerned that they're all worthless, not worthy of showing grace to. They are undeserving. Wow, that sounds like the gospel. So, as you sit in conviction with your kids, I was able to get by it and ignored it and did nothing. Went for a couple days because they were showing up. And then I'm sitting at the coffee shop studying scripture and my wife calls as she's driving the kids to school and she says, okay, look, these guys are out here again. And the kids are asking, you need to talk with them. Not the kids. Took my wife to say, you might want to talk with them so that you have an answer for the kids. So I did. Got my car, drove up, went to the cash machine before, because I had already determined I'm going to give them money. Very tempted. I'll be raw with you. Very tempted to take the church's card, I'll get some money out. The church, this is what the church is supposed to do. I'll get the money out of the church and the flock will be so happy that I bless them. Nope. Because I don't want it to actually cost me anything, right? So I went and got some money and then I went and had a conversation with John and Tony. Both, ironically, providentially, from Marysville. And I asked them all kinds of questions. I asked them why they had God bless on their sign. I said, come on. That just mean like people soften their hearts up, you know. I asked them all kinds of stuff. I asked them how they got to this position, and they had incredible stories of which there's this voice going, "They're lying! They're lying!" Hey, who knows? And I gave them what I had, invited them to church, preached them the gospel, told them I loved them, I'd love to help them more if they would come. Never showed up. 
But I think that we have 101 justifications as to why we don't want to do that. I do, and I did, and I confess honestly that that's wrong. Habakkuk is seen injustice, and I think honestly it takes an act of God for us to actually see it. I think it takes God making us see it for us to actually get to a place where we're moved by it. Because I'm pretty convinced, left alone, we will not be moved by it ourselves. We will ignore it as much as we can. And he is compelled by God to see the violence, which is a larger term, not just violence, but unrighteousness, injustice, where things are not right. And that could be poverty, because the fact is people are impoverished because we don't share food. That's why people are impoverished. The fact is, there is a lot of other darkness here, but some of it's, I guess, much more simple that we ignore as injustice. And he looks at it and he's looking at it going, it's, I can't tolerate it, it's too much. But what's worse than that for him is to tolerate God's silence. And he's sitting there going, why aren't you doing anything, God? Why? Why? There has to be a reason, God. And if you tell me this reason, maybe I'll be at peace that there's this big cosmic you know, purpose for everything and I won't be bothered by it, but tell me what is going on. And the thing that God could have just said was, oh, I told you so. I told you this would happen. In 1 Samuel 8.18, when Israel called for a king, and Samuel says, I'm telling you, you don't want a king. No, we want one. No, you don't want a king. These are the things that's going to happen. No, we want one. Fine, you can have one. And this is what's going to happen. And in verse 18, as he lists all the bad things that will happen, he says in 1 Samuel 8.18, And in that day, after all these things, you will cry out because of your king, because you have no leadership, no vision, no protection for the purity of your worship. You'll cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. I told you. And so God has been silent for some time, and in his silence, which is what happens when God passively shows his wrath and does nothing, Sin flourishes. If I don't parent my children, they will fill their bellies with as much candy as they can find. They will stay up as late as they want. They'll play as much Wii as possible until their eyes are burning. That's what they will do. And that's not loving, although a lot of parents get that a little messed up. I'm going to give them what they want. That's not loving. That's in many ways passive wrath. I'm just going to let you have what you want. And so God is silent, and you see injustice flourishing because when a community begins to ignore the standards of right and wrong and good and bad, men become a law unto themselves and they do whatever they want. And true justice is actually paralyzed. Even if there's laws, it doesn't matter. And Habakkuk is watching his own people. Remember, he's talking to God's people about God's people. He's not talking about Babylon or Assyria. He's watching what God's people are doing, who have been given the law of God and they're living unlawful lives. And he says there are more wicked people than there are righteous within God's people here. There are more Christians, if you will, acting sinfully than Christians who love God. The community is just ruled by idolatry. And the one nation that was set apart by God, these Old Testament Christians, they were set apart to worship Him. They are just as good or better at sinning than the world is. They're giving them a run for their money. And people say that, and quite frankly, they're probably right in their assessment a lot of time about the church. 
that there are Christians that look more worldly than the world. You see God's own people fighting one another, God's own people filing lawsuits to one another, God's own people cheating and stealing and lying, God's own people letting their own go hungry and others perverting justice, the perversion of justice. And he watches, he's watching all this happen, this depravity of man firsthand, just like we watch it. We could click, and you all can, click the internet, click your TV, and you can see all kinds of brokenness in our world and in the world of God, so to speak, divorces, addictions, rape, murder, child abuse, abuse of parents, abuse of spouses, identity theft, fraud, corrupt CEOs. Then you see corrupt lawyers, corrupt politicians, corrupt businessmen trying to find loopholes to ultimately get what they want and pervert justice, to find ways to make the glove not fit, though everyone knows that it does. Right? That's what perversion of justice is like. Come on. And so I began to research because I'm like, I'm going to show how dark this world is. And list of, It's not hard. You've all seen it. You don't need to go far to get your list of brokenness out there and statistics to, to kind of scare you or to show you how bad it is. But what I was struck by was the fact that Habakkuk is not looking real far. He's looking what he sees in front of his faith. He's burdened by what he sees there. And I wonder if that's how I think. Because for us, what we see, I guess, or what should we move by is not necessarily TV, but it's right across the street. It's next door. It's in our neighborhood. I mean, let me ask you a real honest question and don't need to answer. How many of you know the names of your neighbors? And some are like, oh, yeah, I know all the names. Bobby, Timmy, Tina. You're like naming them like, I feel good. How many of you know anything about their lives? Because I guarantee you, if you take a moment to ask a question, to listen, you're going to find that next door and across the street in your own neighborhood, at your job, there's deep, huge amounts of brokenness. Occasionally, I feel like that, and I, again, I am guilty of this, that we can pretend to care about God's justice by mailing our $25 check over to Ethiopia or texting our 10 bucks to Haiti and then ignoring everything we see outside our own home. What about the injustice that's right in front of us? And I realize we can't always fix it. And maybe we rarely can. But when was the last time that any of us wept about what we saw in our own neighborhoods, in our own city? When was the last time that you did see a guy begging for food and you thought, wow, that guy really needs help? Versus the first thought that goes into your mind. How do I change my radio station so he can't look me in the eye? When was the last time we wept over the sin that we see, like Jeremiah and Ezekiel do? Because I don't believe until we're moved by the brokenness of the world in our own family, yes, in our own lives, but especially outside of our homes, we won't get Habakkuk. We won't understand what's going on here. So God answers Habakkuk's cry, and 
It's a way that he doesn't expect, and it should be disturbing to you. Why? Because I'm pretty sure what he's going to say doesn't fit the little God box you have built. Didn't fit mine. Here we go. In verse 5 through 11, here's how God's response, his first response to Habakkuk is. As he cries out, he says, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, which is the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence in all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand at the kings. They scoff and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress and they, for they pile up earth and take it. And when they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Now, in his response, I think it's noteworthy to see that God doesn't go, it's not that bad, Habakkuk, relax. He doesn't say, you know what, they're kind of dirty, but it's way worse out there. He basically affirms everything Habakkuk sees. Yeah, it's bad, and I'm going to judge it. He informs Habakkuk that he is working, though. I'm working, and it's going to be unbelievable. Imagine if God said that. I mean, he starts with an interesting way. Get ready. Get ready, man. Look around. Wonder. Be astounded. You're not going to believe it. And for us, if God's saying that, as we pray, we're like, yeah! Get them! Get them! Take care. Oh, this is going to be good. You're going to redeem your people? I mean, he must be expecting a Josiah-like thing, right? Okay, just like Josiah, you're going to come and restore. It's going to be beautiful and wonderful. And how many times do we do that? I think, for the most part, we always expect positive answers to our prayers. We always expect it's going to be this positive, amazing, good from our perspective thing. I mean, we cry about our finances. Oh, I'm, I don't have a job. I don't have enough money to pay my bills. God's answer has to be more money. That's how I'll know that He's coming through when He gives me more money. Or people who struggle and cry about their addictions, and we, we believe that God's answer has to be immediate, total, instant, forever freedom. I'll never struggle with it again. That's what God, oh man, yeah, here it comes. Get ready. We cry about relationships broken marriages, and we think, okay, God, he says, get ready, be astounded, unbelievable. Yeah, I can't wait till you change that person. It's going to be awesome. Go for it. Get them. Sick them. How many answers do we actually dismiss because they don't actually meet what we expect? And they're not answered in that positive way. And we go, God must be silent. 
Well, that must be wrong or off. God says, and this is, this is where it's, if this doesn't disturb you, then you need to wake up because there's like, there's some rawness to this God that we serve. And that's the question I've been asking all week. Who is this God? I can't stuff him in that box I thought I could fit him in. He's not the vending machine that I thought I could get whatever I want from. He says, God says, right? I'm using? No. I'm allowing? No. I am raising up the Babylonians to deal with the sin that you see. I mean, Habakkuk, what? Seriously? Yeah, those guys. Just so I'm clear, the Babylonians. He probably, like I said, expected a Josiah-like thing. God says, nope, I'm raising up that people, the one you've heard about. You know, that world-renowned, evil, bitter, fierce, hot-headed nation who are conquering everyone and marching over everything to take care of the sin that you see in my own people. To take care of their adultery. I mean, Habakkuk's got to be just floored. I've been crying about the sin and you finally answer me and this is what you say? You're going to make things worse? You are going to make things worse. You mean you're going to allow it, right? No, I'm raising them up. I, was de- I mean, I was struggling with this all week. I'm, I've rewritten my sermon probably six times, including this morning. Trying to just grasp this because I wrestle with it. I sat with my son, God bless him, in my car. I picked him up from school and I said, okay, Fisher, let me give you a little scenario. Let's imagine you're a king. What kind of king? A really powerful king, right? You're in charge of a nation like Josiah. Okay. And your country, your nation is full of just slime balls. Like, what do they do? Just all kinds of bad stuff. Like murder? Yeah, they murder. Okay. They're supposed to love Jesus, right? Yeah. But they're not loving Him. Right, they should probably be spanked. Right. They should be spanked. Let's just imagine you pray to God, right? You're praying because you want your kingdom to be holy and good and love Jesus, and you're praying, and God answers you, and this is what He says. Well, I'm going to raise up this other nation over here and kill your nation. Fisher's like, well, I don't like that. That's how does it make you feel? I'm angry. Why are you angry? Because that doesn't seem fair. I said, yeah, that's what I'm preaching on Sunday. Oh, yeah, that's hard. (laughs) But we talked about what that means. We talked about what a bad person is. And are there any good people and all those kinds of things. But that's what we're dealing with here. He says, I'm going to make things worse. I'm going to raise this up to use judgment. And I'm going to hold them accountable. But this is my way. And just so you understand how bad these people are, let me give you a quote from a professor who wrote about it in a book. And he says this about the Babylonians. The king's cruelties were especially revolting. Pyramids of human heads mark the path of the conqueror. Boys and girls were burnt alive. Some reserved for a worse fate. They were impaled and flayed alive. They had their skin peeled back in front of their family. Then they were blinded or deprived of their hands or their feet or their ears. Some had their noses cut off while the women and children were carried into slavery. 
and they captured the city, plundered and burned to ashes, and all the trees were cut down. How deeply seated was the thirst for blood and vengeance on an enemy was exemplified in a carving on a wall which represent the king and his queen feasting in their garden while the head of the king of the Elamites hung from a tree above in plain view of all the party guests. And that's not just extra biblical. Finally, the king who was defeated in Jerusalem's own family is killed before him before he's taken off to Babylon. These are the people God has said, I'm going to... This is God's solution. And Habakkuk's got to be disturbed. And it doesn't make it any easier to say, well, God allows this or ordains it. It doesn't. Either God is in control or He's not. Whether you want to call it allowed, ordained, purpose, I could really care less. God's in control. However you describe it. So He's raising up this bad thing to happen to punish what are bad people. And it would be akin to, you know, raising up Tiger Woods to deal with your marriage problems. God, my marriage is broken. All kinds of adultery going on. Here, talk to Tiger. He'll help you. Or my finances are messed up. Well, i got a friend named Bernie. He can help you. Right? That's what it is. Like the world. This is your solution. What are you doing, God? And he says in verses 8 through 11, describing kind of how they, how they battle. Talk about piling up earth where they build up a, a ramp to get over the walls. But he says, nothing's going to stop them. They're unstoppable. This isn't, if you repent, we'll be okay. Nothing's going to stop this. This is judgment. Judah's going to be punished. And ironically, Habakkuk cried about a people who are perverting justice. And now it says they'll be judged by people in verse 7 who make their own justice. And Habakkuk cried about a paralyzed people in verse 4. Men who did nothing but pursue perversion. And now, according to verse 8, they're going to be judged by people who are swift as leopards and active as wolves and fast as eagles. They're not paralyzed at all. And he cried about violence he saw, and now God's going to judge through men who are described as coming for violence. That is why they do this. They enjoy it. And in the end, God says, they will be held guilty in verse 11. They will be held accountable. But they will not be resisted. And what we have for me, as, I, as I'm really focused on Habakkuk, and how he's interacting with God here, and you find a picture of faith that's kind of disturbing a little bit. Not the faith itself, but because it's actual faith. I mean, faith is easy when things go your way and things kind of, the story lays out how you want. But, like I said, Habakkuk's pushed him in a place where God is not maybe who he thought he was. And he's not fitting into this little box that he can control. He's radical and unpredictable and utterly different than us. And his faith has to be shaken a little bit about what's going on. And so, here's what I've come to the conclusion as, I, as I've kind of just pieced all this together of what Habakkuk's trying to say in this first chapter, because the story goes on and we have much more to learn. But here are the few things I take from this passage as we listen to this conversation. The first thing, first thing was the injustice in the world, and the question I have for you is, do you see it? Do you see the injustice in the world? Do you see the brokenness that deserves to be punished? 
Do you see the brokenness around you? And when you, does it move you? And like I said, I think that's an act of God for us to actually be moved by it. But are you moved by it? Do you see it next door? Do you see it in your city? Do you see it? We can turn on the TV and see it, but do you turn the channel so you don't have to deal with it? Do you see it at all? And the second question is very related to it. Do you see it as a sin problem and not just a problem? Without question, I think this whole book is going to talk about how sin is a problem. Evil is a problem for us, but it's not a problem for God. And the injustices in the, in the world that we see, the ones in your own life, the ones in the life of others that affect you, do you see those as an internal heart problem? As an issue of sin that has affected us, that poverty, uh, brokenness in marriage, addictions are issues of sin. That that is the core issue. That the problem is idolatry, the, the false... Because that's why these people are being judged for idolatry, that we are finding meaning and purpose and hope and security in other things. The reality is the pain that people have experienced in this bad economy has revealed a plethora of idols. Because that's the core of the issue. Do we really believe God is not in charge of a bad economy? The one who named every star? A few numbers? Oh, that's, that's too difficult for me to handle. The reason I ask that question is because if you don't see it ultimately as a sin problem, how you see it will impact the solution you actually pursue. And if it's just an earthly, fleshly issue of not people aren't sharing their money, you will have a great social gospel that feeds people, that warms people, that makes people feel good, but ultimately is incomplete and doesn't help their heart. It will direct you how you view it either to Jesus or some other Savior that you think is going to do the job. And there is no other Savior other than Jesus that's going to transform a heart. And the third thing I see is after you see it and after you're moved by what you see, do you plead to God? Do you cry to God? And I say not just for your own sin, but for, do we cry to God for the sins of others? Are we moved by what we see? Do we plea about the sin we see in our friends, in our neighbors? I mean, the hard thing is that Habakkuk is what amounts to what we would see as a good Christian. He sees it and he prays and nothing. I mean, this guy loves justice. He doesn't want sin ignored. He wants it punished. But he cries to God for help and is like, why aren't you doing anything? And he faithfully brings it to God. Prays again, nothing. You lose a job. Someone loses their house. A loved one suffers. An accident happens. Business gets bad. Kids are rebellious. You do the right thing. You pray and nothing. Or it gets worse. And you're tempted, probably as Habakkuk was before God began to engage with him, to believe that maybe God isn't there. Maybe he doesn't care. Maybe he's just not powerful enough to do anything. Do you plea to God? And then, do you hear God speak? No, I don't. Just shut that off. I don't hear Him speak. He's been silent. He's said nothing. 
He doesn't speak like he did Habakkuk. If he did, it would be easy for me to believe. Really? Is that why God said it's going to be unbelievable? Like, you're not going to believe it? The fact is, what I believe is that God does speak today. Sometimes people have experienced, sure, an audible voice. I think that's not very normative. But I think we ignore the fact that he speaks through the proclamation of his word and preaching, speaks through his church, speaks through the priesthood of believers, and most importantly, and all those things are really based on, he speaks through this. Through men like Habakkuk. This is not some old dead book. This is when things get hard and things get worse, you read and go, oh, that's who God is. It is the living, active Word of God who declares who He is, who He was, and who He always will be. And yet we are dismissive of it. Well, God's not speaking. He is constantly speaking. And He has spoken through Habakkuk, and He speaks to us. I believe that if God tells us, oh, here comes something that's going to be big, I don't know if that would be very helpful. What's helpful is to read His Word And then lastly, if you hear God speak. When you hear God speak. Because He speaks. Do you believe what He says? Do I actually believe what He says? Because I could very easily say, I don't want that God. I can't believe that He's actually in control of that. It's gotten so bad. No way. This can't can't possibly be a glorifying thing happening here. And you ignore everything that's happened on the cross. The most terrible thing that ever could happen. Yet the most honoring and glorifying thing. Unlike Habakkuk, when God, he doesn't always tell us what he's going to be doing. But like Habakkuk, we often assume that silence means he's doing nothing, especially when things get physically, emotionally, or financially hard. C.S. Lewis wrote in The the Problem of Pain, a great book. You should read it. A quote that you may have heard and I love. It says that God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience. But He shouts in our pains. It it is His megaphone to rouse a deaf world. What are you going to do with a God like that? Is the bottom line. And that's where I've rested. A God who doesn't fit in your box. A God who can't, you can't control. A God who is not predictable. A God who is never surprised, but always surprising. A God who plans for pain. But, a God who says there is a reason why it's there. There is a reason why it's there. And to prove that I care, to prove that I am here, to prove that I am powerful enough, I am going to enter into that pain with you through Jesus, that I might end it forever. That's the only place I can ever go to to say, okay, I understand. I understand there's a reason for judgment because He poured it all out in the sun. There's a reason for evil because He orchestrated all of it to His glory. That's the only place I can rest. And that is the foolish, crazy, psycho good news of the Gospel. And if God came down ahead of time and said, let me tell you what I'm going to do, which he did in Isaiah, and he said, you won't believe it. And we wouldn't have. 
I'm going to come down as a man, not a king, but a carpenter. I'm going to live for 30 years in utter obscurity. After 30 years, I'm going to come and start healing people and blessing people and preaching the kingdom and feeding people. And then I'm going to be mocked, betrayed by my good friends, delivered up as a rebel, rebel to Rome who will ultimately kill me. And you will be forgiven and I will remove all sin and brokenness. Yeah, right. So he told Peter, and that's why he called Peter Satan, because he didn't believe him. That's the foolishness of the cross. And so I close with this. Many of us are faced with, I think, the thoughts of Habakkuk as God works, and when he does stuff that we want to respond to, that's not what I wanted you to do. That wasn't in the story that I wrote it. And you get to a place of disillusionment where you had these romantic views of God, how He was, how He works. They weren't necessarily biblical. And you have to make a choice and you are either propelled toward God, closer to God in a walk with God, or that disillusionment drives you away and God feels distant to you. One of those two things happens. And we see with Habakkuk and my prayers that we follow his example. He doesn't dismiss all doubt. He doesn't go, I don't you know, get it, so forget you. Filled with doubt, he boldly approaches God and he asks another question. In fact, he asks several. And it's not because he wants to get a different answer. It's because he wants to know God more. He wants to know Him. And I just pray that you have the kind of relationship, that we all have the kind of relationship with God, that is not surface, not as routine, not flippant, but is raw, like a marriage, where I am trying to understand who you are, and I'm wrestling with things, asking hard questions, that I may gain understanding, not that I might find a reason to dismiss you, that I might know you more deeply. And I believe we come to know God through Jesus, more deeply or most deeply through communion. And it honestly is the declaration of, I believe that the foolishness of the cross is the most truthful thing there is. And then I will submit to a God whom I can't put in a box, but who clearly came down and loves me and proved it. That is what we declare. Not that we have ourselves all figured out, that we have God all figured out, but trusting in who he is to figure it out. That's the gospel. Let's pray together. Father God, we humbly come before you, knowing that we come into your presence only because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. We come clothed with Jesus. And I pray for hearts of submission, that we will not judge you by our intellect, We will not judge you by our emotion. We will not judge you by our experience, Father, but you will judge us. And you will help us to submit and be in awe of your immensity. In awe of who you are and your perfections. That we will recognize how small we are, how large you are, but how much you love us. May you be honored and glorified by our study, Father. And may our faith be increased. Please, Father, increase our faith in the name of Jesus, your Son, who died on the cross for our sins and rose the third day that we might have new life 
In his work alone do we rest, and not in what we see. Amen.